Hi, everyone. It's Nadia and Domenica back and excited to jump right into our second episode. Yeah. Today, we'll be focusing on different criminal justice reform policies and the role of city government in making those changes. During these past few months, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement emphasize the murders and injustices that Black individuals have been facing since before our country was founded. In the Loop wanted to take a deeper dive into concrete steps and policies that activists, organizers, and elected officials have been discussing to make real change, as well as understanding the importance that local and state government has in these reforms. Recently, policing reform has gotten the most attention, rightfully so. However, when we talk about criminal justice reform, police reform is only one component. Criminal justice reform also means changes in sentencing, drug policies, bail, right to a speedy trial, rehabilitation, and reducing recidivism rates, and implementing social relief in communities, among a host of other factors. In this episode, we will be interviewing Assemblymember Michael Blake from the 79th District in New York and the Vice Chair of the Democratic National Committee. He's here to give us an in-depth look at the issues in criminal justice policy as he has been involved in the New York State reforms. We hope that this episode will be a vehicle for understanding how city government works and how it controls the justice system. Before we dive right in with Michael, we want to give an overview of the structures, issues, and conversations about the Chicago Police Department, CPD, and the role that local government has to make serious and significant changes. The recent murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Walter Wallace Jr. have brought more attention to the systemic racism that minorities face and the issues within our criminal justice system. These tragedies are not unfamiliar to Chicagoans, a city that has a long history of racial divide and oppression that can be seen to this day. Recently, in 2014, 17-year-old Laquan McDonald was murdered by a CPD officer, Jason Van Dyke, who shot him 16 times while it was all caught on film. Yet, the footage was released to the public over a year later by court order. Four years later, it was found in an internal report that there were several officers that committed numerous ethical and internal violations to cover up the shooting. The CPD officer, Van Dyke, was eventually found guilty of second-degree murder in 2018 and sentenced to seven years in prison. Yet, he was the first Chicago police officer in decades to be convicted of murder while on duty. This highlights the lack of accountability that police faced with few convictions and lenient sentences. Police departments are run by local governments. The mayor, representing the executive branch of Chicago government, has the power to hire, suspend, and fire all municipal employees. Mayor Lori Lightfoot oversees the police department and can make any immediate changes, whereas an alderman, representing the legislative branch of Chicago government, votes on bills of his or her constituents' interests and could vote on bills pertaining to criminal justice reform. The CPD structure consists of a superintendent of police who leads the department and manages six bureaus that are led by a bureau chief. The current superintendent is David Brown, and he is responsible for implementing the community policing strategy, facilitating law enforcement strategies, planning police coverage at public gatherings, and more. Also, there's an oversight office for CPD called the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. COPA. This independent agency was established in 2016 and passed as an ordinance through the Chicago City Council, replacing the Independent Police Review Authority. COPA was created in response to the killing of Laquan McDonald. It has the jurisdiction to investigate allegations of police officer misconduct and make recommendations about disciplinary actions and policy changes. However, in 2017, 
the U.S. Department of Justice released a report that was the most significant critique of the Chicago Police Department ever and was a product of a year-long investigation. It came to the conclusion that CPD officers are not well-trained and quick to rely on excessive or even deadly force, disproportionately on those who are Black or Latinx. These officers never face consequences for these actions. With this brief overview of the structures and deep-rooted problems of CPD, we will now go in-depth about other aspects of the criminal justice system with our guest, Michael Blake. So since we're just coming off of an election, can you talk to us a little bit about your time on President Obama's campaign um, in both 2008 and 2012, um, and also your time at the DNC? Well, the... Uh, you know, working for a president is a uh, an indescribable honor, and you know, had the chance to uh, be trained by then Senator Obama in 2006, uh, part of the Yes We Can training program, when they trained 10 people of color to get involved in campaigns, um, and you know, worked on the you know, first campaign started in Iowa. You know, I, I I would always tease I was the other brother in Iowa with Obama, you know, and. Uh, from there to seven other states, to the both inaugurations, the White House, uh, you know, it, it was a, a surreal journey, right? And you know, when you work for someone who is as transformational as he is, uh, it makes everything better. You know, it, it makes you realize that things are happening at scale. Things are happening uh, at a, a a magnitude that it's hard to really appreciate. You know, when you get to the space where you, you, you start to understand that uh, everything you're doing can impact and would impact millions of people. You, know, you, you, you operate much differently. And you, know, you never thought growing up in the Bronx uh, that you would be in a space to work for a president. And no matter what happens afterwards, that will always be there. You know, same thing at the DNC, you know, to, to go from, being the kid that uh, was the president of my youth group at church to uh, student government in high school and college uh, to eventually become a vice chair of the Democratic National Committee, you know, it's it's an honor, an incredible honor. Uh, And to mobilize millennials and to uh, travel to 31 states and two countries and uh, to be a part of showing what is possible and saying to people that uh, Democrats have a vision um, for equity and for justice and uh, to not just tell them why the other side is bad, but tell them why we're good. You know, being the first black man elected since Ron Brown to DNC leadership, like all these pieces are intertwined. And, you know, it's that understanding that excites you. Um, and, you know, while, while, you know, as a Northwestern grad, you know, I don't want any of U of Chicago, you know, you know, uh, a drama to happen here. We all out here right now building together. Right. Uh, You know, it's one of those moments where you realize the training that happened prepared us for that moment. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And have you definitely, I I assume you've definitely felt that in the New York Assembly too. And I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your time there. And since we're talking about criminal justice reform in this episode of our podcast, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what legislation you've been a part of in regards to that in the Assembly. Well, you know, criminal justice reform changes the game. When you think about how police departments originated as slave patrols, when you think about how institutionalized racism has been within 
so many constructs for generations. Uh, you know, when you say that there are so many names that you have heard and the ones you have not um, that have been lost, uh, it makes it all more real and practical. And for me, you know, Khalif Brado was my constituent. Uh, his mother was my constituent. We talk about Raise the Age or Lloyd Morgan or when you interact with members of the Central Park Five and, you know, you, you think about all these different instances that have happened over the years, George Floyd, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you get to the point where you realize enough is enough. So Michael throws out a few terms here that I want us to go over. Khalif Browder spent three years on Rikers Island, ranked one of the worst correctional facilities in the country, without a trial for allegedly stealing a backpack. During his time at Rikers, Browder spent significant time in solitary confinement. Khalif's story represents everything wrong with the criminal justice system, from not accepting the plea deal for a crime he did not commit, to not being able to afford the bail of $10,000, to the system trying 16 and 17-year-olds as adults, to not having access to a proper legal defense, into lacking a speedy trial, everything culminated in the trauma and loss of three years of Khalif's life. The case was eventually dismissed, however, two years later, Khalif tragically took his own life. Blake mentioned the Central Park Five, which was the name given to a group of five teenage Black and Latino boys ranging from ages 14 to 16. These boys were convicted of assaulting and murdering a 28-year-old woman named Trisha May Lee in Central Park on April 20th, 1989. Later, in 2002, after they served their sentences for as long as 13 years, it was found that the rapist was actually a man named Matthias Reyes. The charges against the Central Park Five were vacated, and they received a $41 million settlement. This case has many tragedies, and it highlights how, specifically, the New York justice system needs major reforms. Blake offers a few more ways the New York justice system could be reformed. And, you know, the work I did uh, in New York in the legislature from raise the age so that 16 and 17 year olds are not tried as adults any longer in criminal court uh, to being the lead sponsor in charitable bail organizations, getting funding uh, so that they have more ability to provide help so that poverty is not what's holding you back. You know, the amount of money in your pocket and your last name should not lead to a level of justice that you can't achieve, right? You know, to the work we did around speedy trial uh, so that the clock is not delayed on you while you're waiting or open discovery so that the defense knows what the prosecution has against them. You know, these are the kinds of things that I've been able to work on uh, and provide substantive, tangible relief for. And, you know, all this matters. You know, you think about the families that too often are, are unable to get justice. You know, one reason I ran for office was to be able to provide justice for the name that doesn't know my name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned about uh, a little bit about discovery laws. I, I was wondering if you could talk about, um, you know, New York had the blindfold law um, and, and kind of what changes have been made um, to the discovery laws. And, and also, can you explain exactly just exactly what it is for our listeners um, and how that has affected the defense of those who are accused? You know, look, I, I think too often what was happening uh, is that you had individuals who were saying yes to crimes that they didn't commit uh, and because they were afraid of the plea deals that were being put before them. Someone was telling them, well, I saw you at the scene or I knew you were there. Uh, and that wasn't the case. This is an important point Michael has brought up here. So I want us to further explain the issue with plea deals. Plea deal bargaining represents the impossible choice between choosing to go to trial for a crime you didn't commit and possibly facing a much longer sentence versus admitting to the crime and taking a shorter sentence. 
Right. And if you're someone who can't afford a stellar defense team or have access to the total information of your case, you may go with the plea deal. For years, prosecutors have used coercive tactics to pressure defendants into taking a bad deal, such as pretrial detention to separate the defendants from family members and also lax discovery rules, which is the defendant's access to the case's information. Based on the 2018 report from the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, 97% of cases are resolved through plea deals, showing the rapid decline of individuals facing a trial. Uh, and so what we were finally able to do uh, in the wake of George Floyd and, the, and the, another loss of life, uh, and quite frankly, another you know, uh, murder and assassination of a black man, uh, which has been happening for decades and centuries here, we were able to change the law uh, to address that and did it in a comprehensive manner because I think a lot of us uh, in the assembly and Senate said enough is enough. Uh, and so, you know, changing um, open discovery was part of that. Uh, and, and so now the defense knows um, uh, what the prosecution has and allegedly has on them. Right. So as opposed to saying, well, you know what, I, I know I have this on you because you did this. Well, show me, prove it. You know, release the information and release it in a responsible manner. Now, you had a lot of people um, as defense attorneys who were reluctant, uh, who felt like it wasn't enough time. I, I always think like any piece of legislation is always more time, uh, more opportunities to improve. And so if someone says, uh, at which we did work on earlier this year, uh, revising some of the uh, charges that are considered and included uh, so that you can give more time for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, however, the core of the law uh, was, was saying uh, simply enough was enough, uh, that both sides need to know what the truth is for everyone to have a chance for the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think from this law, it's pretty obvious that the DAs have a big role um, in shaping the outcomes of criminal cases. So I'm wondering kind of, you know, what barriers are there to accessing a lawyer? Because I know that that is a big issue. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Well, a lot of it is, you know, the, the, the economics of it, you know, too often, you know, people are afraid and thinking they don't have the money. Uh, and so what's happening is that they're saying yes to plea deals because they can't afford it. Uh, and that's not what justice should be. Uh, but it's also about not just access to the attorney, which is necessary, uh, but access to just laws. You know, Brian Stevenson said the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Uh, and so when we think about what has to change, uh, yes, the cast of characters and the people have to change. Uh, but for, first and foremost, those of us that are legislators have to change the laws uh, to make sure you actually have a chance in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that, you know, the criminal justice system is definitely um, disproportionately affecting minorities and, and people of color. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how that relates to bail and who can really afford bail um, and what kind of changes needs to be done specifically maybe to New York's bail? Well, no, maybe more direct. The criminal justice system is racist, right? It's not just like disproportionately, right? So at the end of the day, like the, the laws are in place that have an intentional uh, impact against black and brown communities. Um, when you think about crack versus powder cocaine disparity, something we worked on the Obama Biden administration. Here, Michael is referencing to the effects of the war on drugs. Domenica, can you explain what that period of time was? Sure. The war on drugs is a phrase that refers to a movement that began in the 1970s and is still evolving today. 
focused on stopping illegal drug use and trade by increasing prison sentences. This war has been knowingly deemed as racist, as even Nixon's own domestic policy chief was quoted saying that their biggest enemies were the anti-war left and the blacks. So they knew that if they associated the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin while criminalizing both drugs heavily, they could attack these communities in a legal way. Michael talks about crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, which is an example of how the war on drugs has evolved. In 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which instituted harsher penalties for crack cocaine offenses than for powder cocaine offenses. Specifically, the law said that one gram of crack cocaine can be treated as 100 grams of powder cocaine. Wow. And yeah, clearly there are racial undertones there because crack cocaine users tend to be black while powder cocaine users tend to be white. Exactly. Luckily, there's been some progress. In 2010, Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the discrepancy between crack and powder cocaine offenses, and public support for the war on drugs has diminished dramatically. Still, there's work to be done. New York still hasn't legalized marijuana, yet Illinois has. However, Illinois' overall drug possession laws are much stricter than New York's. I mean, there's so many different things that it's clear and obvious uh, that happen over and over again. Uh, and so at the end of the day, you know, what are we seeing? Uh, whether it be bail, whether it be speedy trial, whether it be open discovery, uh, whether it be raise the age, you know, over and over and over again, what we are now working on is trying to achieve equity and justice and saying that the communities that have been the recipients of injustice for centuries now need to have their opportunity to finally be the benefactor of justice. Uh, and in large part, uh, that's what we're trying to achieve in a very practical way. I mean, you think about um, just over and over again, what do we see uh, where you have grand jury processes uh, that are not transparent, uh, and then you're finding out after the fact that the charges that were presented uh, were nonsensical uh, itself. Uh, when we think about how people are being arrested uh, and charged and tried uh, too often, uh, we know they're going after black and brown communities and, and being more direct, uh, black men. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the impetus of why anyone should be inspired to do the work, whether it be your first interaction with an officer, whether it be the uh, interaction in the courtroom, whether it be you're waiting on if you're going to have justice in the trial, uh, whether it be do you have money to pay for your bail, uh, whether it be the, the family interactions that we often don't recognize the dynamic of that as well. Uh, whether it be the, the transformation and making sure visitation continues and equally in the space of COVID, uh, where rates were exploding uh, in jails and prisons, uh, whether it be in Illinois, New York, or across the country, you know, criminal justice has the moment now to be transformative, to truly give hope to people that have been waiting for it for generations. Uh, and something that makes me very excited about the Biden-Harris administration is that they've been very clear that yes, we have a public health pandemic, but we also have a systemic racism and systemic injustice pandemic as well. Uh, and breaking the mold, mold of that um, can be achieved. Lastly, you know, President Obama, uh, through the My Brother's Keeper work, you know, one of the six pillars is focused on criminal justice because we can't just talk about what happens around uh, boys and young men of color getting educational opportunities, 
Uh, we can't only just talk about the economic ones from jobs and skills and training, which are necessary. There also must be the radical reformation when it comes to criminal justice. Uh, and let's be clear, that does not make you a socialist. That doesn't make you any of the other words and terms you hear from the opposition. This is about giving fairness uh, and saying at the end of the day, uh, all you're asking for is a chance to go home. Mm-hmm. And so what do you believe the next steps um, or the biggest things that the Biden-Harris administration should accomplish um, when it comes to criminal justice reform? Like, what is it that they need to focus on right now? Um, their first legislations, uh, what do you think on that matter? I think there's a few different things. I think one, you know, how do you think about uh, addressing, you know, no-knock warrants and chokehold bans and uh, police misconduct that when it's identified, how do you make sure that there's rules in place um, so that an officer uh, can be suspended without pay and lose their job if it's clearly committed that, 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 that infraction and that crime? Uh, there should be a war, uh, also a, a registry around that as well. Uh, the deeper dynamic going a step further uh, around the considerations around uh, training. You know, how are officers being trained? What's happening uh, with the DAs and prosecutors and, and law enforcement around that training? Uh, so that there's greater transparency. Uh, there has to be a, dr- a true effort around sentencing reform. Uh, and quite frankly, there's a lot of sentences that need to be reduced, if not eliminated, uh, for individuals who shouldn't be in for what they're in for. You know, you think about how Lindsey Graham is doing the nonsense and, and trying to uh, impact what's going on in Georgia, uh, which, uh, you know, is a, uh, a felony, I believe, uh, from what's been indicated. But you have a, a sister that was incarcerated in Texas because she mistakenly wrote in the wrong place. I think she's been in jail for five years. Uh, and so some things are just obscene on, on so many different levels. So our job um, has to collectively be, how do you create true opportunities for justice for the people, right? Um, and, and I think the Biden-Harris administration is gonna do that. I think you need to expand further on the 21st century policing um, vision um, to really dive deeper on what that can look like and be um, as well, uh, and really be very clear um, that it's from cradle to the career and beyond before, during, and after the process, before you have an interaction with an officer, do you have the resources in your community to have a chance? During the timetable where someone may be incarcerated, do you actually have fairness in the process? And afterwards, a chance for a real uh, breaking down the wall so you don't have recidivism. Um, that's what has to be the approach uh, when it comes to criminal justice. And I'm very confident uh, that is going to be the case in the Biden-Harris administration. So Michael talks about 21st century policing. What does that entail, Domenica? Well, there's been a debate about what should be done to have the police better serve our communities. This conversation started under Barack Obama's presidency. In this debate, there are three main camps. There's decreased funding, increased funding, and then abolition. Right. So the first camp involves decreasing funding. The argument behind this is that with police misconduct occurring, we should be reallocating police funds and investing them in communities or social workers. In fact, Reported by the Mental Illness Policy Organization, 84% of law enforcement respondents said that there had been an increase in mentally ill calls over their career. Social workers would be more equipped to handle mental health-related issues. Chicagoans, for example, have repeatedly taken to the streets to call for redirecting police funding toward families in Chicago's most underserved areas. Yes, and the other argument for decreasing funding is that it would lessen violence and crime. 
If you decrease a police department's funding, they will shrink and there will be less police actively patrolling for minor crimes, such as the ones that George Floyd and Eric Garner were subject to. Abolition takes defunding a step further. Redirect police funding to healthcare, housing, and education, but redirect all of it. Proponents of this idea argue that police departments are inherently racist institutions and therefore cannot be reformed. Instead of police, we could have community care workers, social workers who do mental health checks on the community to see if someone needs help. So then what's the reasoning for increasing the funding? Well, proponents of the solution say that we need to increase funding in order to give police forces more resources to implement the changes and reforms many are calling for, such as adopting a national use of force standard, buying body cameras, and recruiting more diverse police officers. This is more of the avenue that Obama and Biden have proposed. Hmm. Now, at the city level, I know that in June, New York announced reallocating some of the funds towards youth and social services. And in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has vehemently denounced defunding the police. Her philosophy is more in line with Biden's as she believes reforms will cost money, as well as trying to balance the high crime rates in her city. Even so, she's launching a new pilot program in 2021 where officers responding to certain mental health crisis calls will be joined by a trained mental health professional, community paramedic, and crisis intervention trained officer. Seeing the various roads being taken by different levels of government, I wonder, who really has the power for change here? Well, all levels of government actually have some sort of influence. For example, Congress can pass certain laws like eliminating qualified immunity, which gives officers more protection in lawsuits, require agency and state-level data collection from the police, and, of course, it can regulate federal funding. However, the Department of Justice cannot actually intervene in the actions of police departments, which leaves the core of decisions down to the states. States can control use of force and define exactly what kinds of force can be used in exactly which kinds of situations. They can amend law enforcement officers' Bill of Rights, a bill that protects a police from investigation and prosecution that varies between states and they can amend police union bargaining rights, all of which can prevent misconduct. They can also require certain standards for certifying police officers and increase the transparency of police departments. And of course, they have the authority to create laws on criminalization of certain drugs and activities. Exactly. Now, local agencies have their own powers as well. They have their own accountability systems and their own training and ways of policing. And most importantly, they dictate the culture of the police. They are responsible for instilling morals and values of caring for the community into their officers, which ultimately leads to whether or not they can actually follow the requirements instituted. Oh, so what you're saying is that although the government can require certain tactics or procedures, it's up to the individual agencies themselves to enforce them? Right. So while the government can require police officers to wear body cameras, they can't exactly control when the officers actually turn on their cameras. Agencies would need to engage in instituting external oversight in order to be held accountable. I think we'll hear more about what Illinois and New York can do to reform its criminal justice system from Michael Blake. Well, I know you have to hop off soon. So uh, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, Definitely criminal justice reform is very expansive. (laughs) There's a lot we could definitely go into. Um, And and so I kind of just wanted to end with maybe, you know, your comparisons between New York and uh, Chicago's or maybe Illinois as a greater state. Um, They're kind of their reforms on criminal justice and which state do you think 
is maybe quote unquote doing better than the other or what can each um, continue to do better and what can they each change? Well, I think the real battle is, should it be deep dish or New York style? Uh, I, I think that's <laughs> the first question around pizza. So like uh, if, we, if, we, if we can get that resolved then we can build from there. You know, I, I think that, you know, look, uh, I, I think both of our states need to be much better on uh, individuals who have been incarcerated given what's been going on with COVID. Uh, and, and I do believe uh, there's a major opening that exists that if you were able to release someone and believe it was safe to release them because of this pandemic, uh, then why on earth were they there in the first place? And why would you send them back? Right? So clearly there's a determination that these individuals were not as serious a risk as you were trying to make it seem that they were. Uh, and so what I think the opportunity for both of us, uh, our states has to be, is utilize the crisis to create a true opportunity for justice. You know, and so rather than building of new jails, have closer to home programs, have alternatives to incarceration, have greater investments uh, when it comes to uh, violence interrupters, you know, really think about mental health uh, and trauma after the shooting occurs. You know, finding those different opportunities are all intertwined around the justice. And I think what something that we need to keep expanding upon is continuing to find more ways uh, to keep people out of the criminal justice system in the first place. Uh, you know, obviously because of the Obama Foundation and the vision of the president and what happens my MBK, uh, there'll be a great presence around that in the South side. We need to replicate that in the South Bronx. Uh, and so those are just a few things um, that come to mind. Uh, you know, I think, and I think we can all agree 2021 and beyond um, have to be transformational when it comes to criminal justice and the policies that are implemented uh, and New York and Illinois, if we do that right, can hopefully uh, lead the way in both. Mr. Blake, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. That conversation with Michael was so eye-opening. Thank you everyone for listening to our second episode. We hope that we can give you all a better understanding of the role cities play in transforming criminal justice in Chicago and New York. Now that you all know what Chicago and New York are doing to handle criminal justice issues, I encourage all of you to promote effective policing practices, justice and trials, and equitable sentencing. Some ways you can do this is by reaching out to your local government officials on changes that you would like to see. It is more important now than ever to speak up. As a reminder, some important contacts are the mayor of Chicago, Laura Lightfoot, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, or even a local alderman or congressman. This highlights that while presidential elections do matter, it's the local and state positions that have a major and tangible impact on our daily lives. Who is mayor, who makes up the city council, determines how we handle policies of criminal justice and how we can strive to make society more equitable. We hope that we provided you with an overview of the policy conversations and structures of the Chicago government to help guide conversations with others about criminal justice reform. And with those wise words, that ends our show. For you, Shine the Loop, I'm Domenico Fernando. And I'm Nadia Osman. See you in January.